0: Truth is all I have to give. Dr. Morris Nicol, living time in the integration of the life. Let us consider an example of a changed state of consciousness and see whether we can regard it in some degree as an example of the reaching of a higher level. That's where we left off last week, and I said, eh, we're not going to do that because he goes into Tennyson thing. It's the familiar one that Tennyson recorded of himself. And, of course, none of you have ever heard it. It's so familiar, none of you have ever heard it. So I don't know who it's familiar to. Obviously, he thought it was familiar. A kind of waking trance I have frequently had, Tennyson said, quite up from my boyhood, when I have been all alone. This has generally come upon me through repeating my own name two or three times to myself silently, till all at once, as it were, out of the intensity of the consciousness of individuality, the individuality itself... "'seemed to fade away into boundless being. "'And this is not a confused state, "'but the clearest of the clearest, "'the surest of the surest, "'utterly beyond words, "'where death was almost a laughable impossibility, "'the loss of personality, if so it were, "'seeming no extinction, but the only true life. "'I am ashamed of my feeble description. "'Have I not said that the state is beyond words?' We can understand that a higher level will make the lower seem unreal. Tennyson felt the unrealness of his usual state because he felt another kind of realness which freed him from all that sense of himself that goes with the name. I don't know if you've ever had that experience or not or anything approaching that. I suspect that everybody has, not that you repeat your name over over and over to yourself, but that there's something that triggers it. And all of a sudden you just realize that your whole life is a joke just a joke. It's, it's laughable. It's like, oh my God, why would anybody worry about that? Why would anybody be concerned about that? It's like, so what? I guess it happens not all the time, but it happens, well, it happens as often as you trigger it, I suppose, or as often as something triggers it. He goes on to say, also he passed out of the usual sense of time. In the reality that we derive from our experience of passing time, death confronts us. Well, you have to admit that death does confront us. You know that you, that this body, that this time body will end. It's a time body. It's a time body because it is stuck in time. It's It's like a hobby horse bolted to a merry-go-round, except that it's a straight line. It's like, you ever see those steeplechase games? No, the horse steeplechase games. And they have these horses and they're on these tracks. And they run around, shh, and then one of them wins. No, that's the, it was a game when I was a kid, steeplechase. And we're, our time bodies are like that. We're racing toward the end. <laughs> that's what we're doing. You, you see people, when they're younger, they're really running hard. But as they get older, they slow down and go, eh, I'll get there when I get there. You know? It's like, it's no big deal. It's kind of funny, because we are stuck in these time bodies, and death confronts us. We're incapable of thinking of death, incapable of realizing it as the inner perception of an idea, in the true idea of himself that he touched. Death was an impossibility. Well, I have touched that, where death is an impossibility, because you know that there is no death. It's like you have this experience of Being outside the body, and you look at the body, and you look at your whole life, and you say, what a joke. Why would anybody be upset? Why would anyone want to do this, when you could do this other instead? Unfortunately, the other isn't that easy to do, so we always get sucked back down into this again. But death, as a visible fact that we try to grasp with the outer mind, continually feeds the uneasiness on which most of our life rests or if it has left a blank in our lives, keeps on dragging us backwards in a useless way. With the sensual conception of life, we cannot meet these difficulties. As long as we're looking at life through the five senses, we're not going to resolve these problems about death. It's just not going to happen. It's not going to happen. Passing time makes death an insoluble, incontrovertible problem, blinding our understanding. And from the natural sense, we cannot comprehend time save as we experience it. it. makes perfect sense. How could you comprehend time outside of the way you experience it? Death is a fact in our natural reality. That is, in our sense-given experience of life. And as long as we cannot understand that we apprehend through the senses only a tiny part of total existence in reality, we cannot escape from the violent effect of, of its suggestions sense life is suggesting stuff to us all the time read the news there's now uh, this kissing bug that bites people and passes on this horrible fever or something and it's big in uh, Bolivia and now that there's so many Bolivians in Virginia of all places. I guess they're, we're flying them in, you know, because that's what we do. We fly them in, give them $100,000 each and say, here you go, open a Seven Eleven or something. I don't know. But whatever. I don't know how it all happens, but it's so bizarre. And so now they have this epidemic in Virginia because there's so many Bolivians and their contact with other people passes along this disease. And People worry about this. They're worried about the mosquito that's down in the islands, the Caribbean, and it's biting people, and, oh, it gives them this terrible fever and joint pain that can last for years and all this other stuff. You know, and I think, so what? But I don't have any of it. But that doesn't mean I don't have any pain. If you're on this planet and you're in one of these bodies, pain goes with the territory. So for people to go around, oh it's so horrible, look at the pain I'm in. Oh, I remember a guy in Florida. <laughs> He's dead now. He was a great guy, he was a ham radio operator. And I went to Florida oh about um what well, gee, thirty years ago? Twenty eight years ago, something like that, to speak at a church down there. And Jim and Lois Keyes were friends from St. Petersburg. Before I had gone into the ministry, I lived in St. Petersburg. So they were friends from back then. They were an elderly couple and they'd come out to California and I'd see them there. They'd go to Las Vegas and I'd see them there. Anyway, I went down there and I stayed with them while I was down there speaking at, I guess, their church. It was their church and, uh, meaning the church they went to. And <laughs> he had just had open heart surgery and unbelievably, he could not wait to take a shirt off and show me a scar and tell me the horror of it and tell me how they split him open like a chicken, you know, and and all this stuff. And I think like, you know, there is more to life than this. There's more to life than talking about your hemorrhoids and your varicose veins and your heart attacks. And but yes, if you're going to be in a physical body and you're going to be identified with it, it's going to be problematic. And as you get older It's going to become more and more problematic as it wears out and weakens. But you don't have to live your life there. You can escape from the violent defect of the sense-bodies and the sense-minds suggestion. The experience recorded by Tennyson shows that he touched an entirely new feeling of what? Yes, self, I. He touched an entirely new feeling of I. He says that he lost his ordinary sense of personality. Don't you wish you could lose your ordinary sense of personality like, and not find it again? The problem is we lose it, but then we find it again. Or it finds us. That's more like it. I think it finds us. It's an awful thing. This by itself would be a terrible experience. To feel one's ordinary sense of I disappearing would be like death. This happened to me once. This actually happened to me once, and I remember panicking. It was like (gasps) a panic. I mean, I really freaked out. it grabbed hold of something. I mean, I grabbed hold of something to make sure that I was, you know, still in my body. It was scary. And what it was, was I was I lost my sense of my usual self. I was probably about 26 years old or 27. No, I was younger than that, 25. 20, yeah, about 25 years old. I just wasn't ready for it. You know, I, I remember another guy in Florida, <laughs> when I told him I was going in the ministry, he said, Really? I said, yeah. He said, you know what you want to do? And he said, you're so young. He said, how old are you? And I told him, I was like 23 or whatever. And he said, oh, I didn't have enough sense to pour urine out of a boot. He didn't say urine. He was from Texas, I guess. I didn't have enough sense to pour urine out of a boot if the instructions were written on the heel. And I remembered that, but I didn't think it was very smart. Now, I look back at it and I think, oh, he said before he was 30. And I think, now I would only amend that by saying, before I was 50. Before I was 50, I didn't have enough sense to pour urine out of a boot, even if it was my boot, if the instructions were written on the heel. Now, I'm sure that a a number of young people would think that's just a stupid thing to say. But when you get to 50, tell me how stupid it was. Of course, you won't have to tell me here, because I won't be here. When you get to 50, I will have moved on to something else. And I'm not the least bit worried about it. But in his case, his whole life seems to have been gathered up into a larger synthesis. We're talking about Tennyson, in which his existence became something quite new, above the level of ordinary consciousness and the familiar feelings of I that belong to it, the I-conceit of Buddhist teaching. He knew himself behind himself, behind the sense of personality, by direct cognition. And descending once more, to the ordinary level of consciousness, which does not know the higher level, he is unable to find words to describe his experience. It's because there are no words to describe the experience. He can feel only that his description is entirely inadequate. If, say, then, that this experience belongs to the noetic level, we probably have some right to do so. Only the experience refers to a higher form of knowledge of oneself. It is confined to this and perhaps we could say, to the true idea or form behind the ordinary self. The premise is that there is a real I, that there is a real I behind this mask. (laughs) There's no other way to put it, this mask that we're wearing in life, behind this body. There's a real I, and we, while we're in this body and doing all the things that we do in bodies, are not aware of this real eye, which is higher. Which is all right. I, I remember one time in asked. They gave this example, and it was a good example, that life was like Monopoly, and the world is the board. And in Monopoly, everybody gets a little piece to move around the board. Mm-hmm. There's the top hat and the battleship and the Scotty dog. I don't. Do you remember any of these? Yes. The car, yeah. And so you get one of those pieces, and everybody gets a different piece. And then you roll the dice. And whatever comes up, you move that many squares. And if you land on this or that, then, you know, great. Or not so great. <laughs> and if you got the money, you can buy it. And if you don't have the money, then you can't buy it. And if you, if you land in somebody else owns it, you pay them rent and like that. And they were saying that we think that we're the Scotty dog or the battleship or the top hat. But actually we are what the real eye is, is that Person that's moving that piece around the board, and we are unaware of that when we're Scotty dog or top hat or battleship. We don't know about that eye, that real eye. And when we do know about that real eye, when we are having an experience of that real eye, the game looks silly. It just looks like a game. It just looks like it looks like a big monopoly board, and all the money looks like monopoly money, and the pieces just look like little pieces. In fact, everything looks unimportant. It's just a game. And that's that. And that was one of the ways they explained this awakening, this realization that you can have. So he knew himself behind himself, behind the sense of personality by direct cognition, descending once more to the ordinary level of consciousness, which doesn't know the higher level. He's unable to find words to describe experience. Okay, so... Only the experience refers to a higher form of knowledge of oneself. self. It is confined to this. It cannot come outside of this. Once you have this knowledge, this higher knowledge of yourself, there is no way to transmit it in the world. It's outside of the world. And so, therefore, it cannot be transmitted easily in the world. Perhaps we could say to the true idea or form behind the ordinary self. The main difference between the standpoint such as that expressed by Erygina or Plato, and the naturalistic or materialistic standpoint, is that greater reality is posited, lying not ahead of us in future time, but in some other direction independent of time. This is the thing. These bodies, like I say, are the steeplechase game. They're stuck on this track, and they're going from past through the present to the future. And everything for us is on that track. Everything is on that track. We don't know what's coming up next but we know that there's something coming up next and we don't know anything else. We know that some things happened in the past and some people live looking back and some people live looking forward, but hardly anybody lives in the now. The reader will understand that all that has been said so far in this chapter relates to the existence of an above and a below, that is, to scale. In man, as in the universe, there is an above and a below. From the standpoint of consciousness... A higher level of consciousness exists in man, whose quality is not comparable with that of ordinary consciousness. The realities belonging to ordinary consciousness are only relative realities. It's all relative to your body. It's all relative to time. It's all relative to your sense mind and your sense feelings. There's an emotional body that's built up by the five senses as well. You hurt me. I'm offended. That's, you know, that kind of thing. I have rights. That is an emotional body that's been built up by the sense mind and by our contact with the sense world. Just as that aspect of the world manifests to the physicist is only relative reality. Just as we know one aspect of the world through the senses, so do we know only one aspect of consciousness. If you know only one aspect of the world and it's just a sliver of the whole world, You're seeing so little of what's actually here. And then we only can see one aspect of consciousness. To refer to the analogy of the schoolmaster in class mentioned in the previous chapter, we know only a form of consciousness comparable to a disordered class from which the schoolmaster is absent or in which he's asleep. His awakening is not a matter of future time. It's not going to happen on the timeline. We imagine that what we lack must lie in the future. It's got to be somewhere on this track that we're headed toward. You know, our career or our retirement or whatever, it's in the future. Whatever isn't here is in the future. And so we imagine that whatever it is we lack now must lie in future time. But we have already seen that, according to Erigena's system, greater reality lies above us, not, so to speak, horizontally in the line of passing time. The line of past, present, and future but vertically on another level. This vertical direction does not belong to time. It intersects time now. Always intersects time now. It can't intersect time in the past, and it can't intersect time in the future, because there is no past and there is no future. It can only intersect time now, because now is all there is. But we don't know that, being stuck in these bodies playing steeplechase. Our strivings have their full fruition, not in the horizontal direction, but in the vertical one. We must imagine this direction in reflecting upon Tennyson's experience. Apparently, he awoke to another and fuller order of conscious experience. He stepped up, not forward or backward. In the philosophical system of Averroes, 12th century, it is said that the fruition of all man's strivings is already and always attained. This actualization, which is, of course, incomprehensible to our reason, is achieved now and ever beyond the limiting conditions of time to which we are subjected and from which our customary mode of thinking is derived. You can see that you are subjected to time. (laughs) You don't have a choice about this. You have been subjected to it. You were born into a body, into this timeline, and there wasn't anything you could do about it. By the time you learned how to suck your thumb or move your hands or kick your feet or walk or eat on your own or do anything, you were already completely, utterly committed to this. By that time, you had probably forgotten everything else about yourself because that's how it works here. This actualization, which is, of course, incomprehensible to our reason, is achieved now and ever beyond the limiting condition of time to which we're subjected, from which our customary mode of thinking is derived. The full fruition of the universe and all that it contains, being already and always actualized, according to this and other other thinkers, certainly cannot belong to the time order as we know it. But since the direction of our thinking follows the time order, We have great difficulty in understanding this quite different and singular point of view. And that's why we have used so many different examples to try and get this thing so that we can get a handle on it in some way. It's so difficult for us to comprehend because our ability to think is limited by our immersion in this time body. According to Averroes, or whatever his name is, A-V-E-R-R-O-E-S, Averroes, man is constructed, if he was Spanish, man is constructed in such a way that he can understand this other direction, and can indeed only attain happiness when he begins to discover it. This other direction, meaning the vertical direction, not the timeline, not the horizontal line. Above the passive understanding, it is said, lies an active understanding, which can grasp the nature of this direction, that is vertical. Yet, while all this remains incomprehensible, we can, to a certain extent, understand what it must mean. It must mean that we are asked to think differently about time. So what we're being asked now, what you have been being asked for years, is to think differently about time. I've tried to get you to think of time as, to say time is like a piece of string that is tacked over here and tacked over there and you move along that string like a tightrope walker and there it is but if you take that string and you roll it up into a ball it's all right now there is no past present and future it's all right now so that's just another way to look at it another way to look at it was the idea of getting up above it all so that if you're on a journey and you're in your car and you're going through the mountains and you're in the valley and you can't see what's on the other side of the valley because the mountains are all around you. But someone up in a plane or someone up in the mountains can see the car. They can see that you're here now and here now and here now and here now and here now. They can see the whole thing. They can see where you're going, where you're going to be, where you've been. So that's another way to look at it. As we shall see later on, it has been said repeatedly that we cannot understand anything rightly unless we overcome the illusion of time, which doesn't say much for us because we don't spend a lot of time overcoming the illusion of time. Some transformation of our natural understanding is requisite in order that another level of understanding can be born in us. So much importance was attached by the older thinkers to this higher level of understanding that, as I've already mentioned, we often find it said that no one can say he has real knowledge unless he has felt the influence of this higher degree. That is, something very definite must happen to a man before he can begin to understand in any real sense you can see this will not be very popular with people because they think that we think we understand everything and we think that the things we don't understand we haven't bothered to understand and we could understand them very easily okay not everybody we get hit in the head with a bat long enough and we start to think you know that hurts it does happen we we do get it every once in a while we go you know i just don't know everything i didn't see that coming speaking cosmologically averroes says of our ordinary understanding that it belongs to the sublunary world and is incapable of solving the problems that confront us because it understands nothing. Just as waking makes dreams unreal, so we are told, does waking to another level of consciousness make all our ordinary problems, preoccupations, and perplexities seem unreal? And like I said, when you get it, when you get a taste, a whiff, a sense, a real eye, all this looks ridiculous. It's a joke. One of the best interpreters of the psychological ideas of Boehm, B-O-E-H-M-E, Boehm, let's call it Boehm, has expressed this standpoint very plainly in the following terms. The greatest part of mankind, no, of all Christians, may be said to be asleep. That particular way of life, which takes up each man's mind, thoughts, and actions, may be very well called his particular dream. The learned and the ignorant, the rich and the poor, are all in the same state of slumber, passing away a short life in a different kind of dream, that is said by William Law, or written by William Law. This 18th century writer goes on to say in theological language that man has the possibility of some other state above the state of slumber, which is the chief psychological idea found in religion. So what we find in religion is, wake up, wake up. That's what we find. We must notice a connection that he makes. As we might expect, he connects this state of slumber with time. In this, he follows his teacher closely, for Bohem said that man fell asleep in time. We cannot, of course, understand what this means. In order to begin to understand what this may mean, we require a great many new ideas and conceptions. And so you should be able to begin to understand what this means because you have had a great many new ideas and conceptions introduced to you over the past nearly 30 years. So this shouldn't be that much of a leap for you. Law remarks that man can never understand what his life means unless he grasps that his constitution contains a higher possibility within it, which stands above the state of slumber and time. Once a man realizes this possibility, whatever it is, He comes to a new view of himself and of the significance of his life. And this realization, we're told, is to know oneself, to know potentiality. Do but suppose a man to know himself that he comes into this world on no other errand but to arise out of the vanity of time. Do but suppose him to govern his inward thought and outward action by this view of himself, And then to him every day has lost all its evil. To suppose that you're in this world and the only thing you have to do is just arise out of the vanity of time to get above it. And just suppose that all of this, all of your thoughts and all of your actions are to be established based on that view, that higher view. And then when that happens, every day has lost all its evil. Prosperity and adversity have no difference because He receives them and uses them in the same spirit, etc. Volume 7, page 1, the works of William Law, fellow of Emmanuel College, originally published in what year do you suppose? 1749. Make you feel dumb? And privately reprinted in 1893. 1749, this guy was thinking these thoughts. Well, all I can say is, good for him, bad for us. Because we have lost the ability to think like that. We have been so dumbed down by machines, by, by everything. We're so dumbed down that we can't sit and think anymore. We have to do something. You can't even take a walk without being on a cell phone. You can't drive your car without texting. Why else would they have a law against it? And they're giving people tickets for texting while they drive. Who would do that? And the answer to that is obviously a lot of people. So we are so dumbed down. There's a little video on YouTube of two women running on the train tracks with the train behind them. And they were on some kind of trestle, you know, up on a bridge. And they're running. And I just thought, what a couple of idiots. What are you doing there? They were probably drinking a 24-pack of Bud or something, I don't know, and fell asleep. The same notion, the notion that we are not awake, that we're not at a level of consciousness where we can understand anything rightly, where it's impossible to know or have anything real, and where we cannot be in control of ourselves because we're not conscious at the point where control would be possible. You must see that you're not in control of yourself. It is found is found throughout Platonic, Christian, and many other teachings. But consider how difficult, how impossible it is for us to admit that we are asleep in life. I dare you, just go and tell somebody they're asleep. It's not a pleasant experience. I know, I've done it. <laughs> remember when I introduced this whole all this stuff to you? And you're all asleep. It's like... Rawr, rawr, you got pretty upset. A lot of people left. You proved it by using this vent right here. Yeah, as that's an right. I remember that. That's because I was here. Such an experience can only be brought about by the influences of efforts and ideas belonging to the nearly lost science of awakening. And in the 50s, it was nearly lost. Now, it's in extinction. It is in extinction. The translators of the gospel could not have properly understood this idea, for they translated the Greek, whatever that word is, as watch, watch therefore and pray, etc. This word, watch, is found in many places in the New Testament, but its real meaning is to be awake. And the force of this meaning is incalculably greater than that expressed by the term watch, because we are told everywhere in the Gospels to be awake. Is it not clear that we are at the same time being told that we are asleep? So if you're told, be awake, then aren't you at the same time being told really that you're asleep? Heraclitus said, I sought myself. The doctrine of self-knowledge written over the porch of Delphi is not what we imagine. Only when we realize that we have no self can we seek ourselves. Only through a flash of truth can one understand ignorance and falsity. But this kind of self-knowledge escapes us. And this this is a perfect example. Because once you've had that flash of truth and you can understand ignorance and falsity, then when the flash of truth is gone, you imagine you still understand it. That is the sad part of it. But this kind of self-knowledge escapes us. Socrates found the first step in self-knowledge to consist in becoming aware that we don't know ourselves, and in fact, we don't know anything. This is a very difficult state to maintain for a lot of people. We pretend to know everything. What makes us do that? Pride. Pride and vanity, absolutely. In realizing our ignorance... In catching a glimpse of pretense, in ceasing blindly to believe in opinions, slogans, words, we begin to know ourselves. The example he gives is we begin to awaken out of a dream. Our consciousness begins to be increased, just in what we perhaps might suppose to be a direction leading to an opposite result. But if you know you do not know, you are more conscious. If you know you don't know, you're at least more conscious than you were when you thought you knew. One's self becomes thus the instrument for awakening. The more we lie to ourselves, the more we are asleep. Consider today the power of lies and the increasing lack of resistance to them, and so the increasing sleep of the world. Just look at politics. If anyone believes anything that any politician ever says... What can I say? I mean, why would anyone believe anything that any of them ever say, given what their agenda is? It has nothing to do with serving. It has to do with serving themselves, self-serving. That's just the truth about it. But look at the lack of resistance to those lies. Look at the lack of resistance to the lies you read in the newspaper. We swallow, we'll strain out gnats and swallow elephants, camels. Dinosaurs, if there were any, and if somebody tells us there are, we'll probably believe that. Man has fallen asleep in matter and in time and in himself. But let's note how it is put in the greater allegory of creation. Man is tempted by the serpent, which crawls on its belly in the dust. Where our feet touch the earth is where the domain of the senses begins. Here man is a creature of sense, sense-minded, sensual. Here his wisdom is of the senses. To kill your enemy is wisdom of the senses, for your enemy then disappears. Your senses no longer register his existence. And so that's why people are obsessed with killing their enemies. Get them out of here, get rid of them, because we believe that that will actually do it. All the cleverness of materialism enters here to make man think that he knows. And though every sensible object is a mystery, and the senses themselves are a mystery, he feels he can take hold of the sensible world, not only to enjoy it as he pleases, but to mold it to his commands. This is pandemic today. It's beyond epidemic. It's pandemic. We think we're going to mold the planet. We think we're going to mold nature with what all this DNA, screwing around with all that. We are going to mold everything. We are going to fix everything. We are going to make all these plants and vegetables and fruits, all disease resistant through doing this stuff with the blah, 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 blah. We think that we're actually going to be able to mold nature to our commands. In this sense, he eats the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He takes good and evil into himself, decides himself what should be done. And this necessary step leads on. Not to recovery, but to the idea that he can rule. He becomes much wiser than the universe in his own estimation. And we are there. We are living in a stupid, unintelligent, dumb universe. It's just this thing, this machine that's operating. And we are smarter, and we're figuring it all out. And just not very long in the timeline, shortly, we're going to have it all figured out. Then we're going to fix everything it seems to him he can conquer all things although his inner weakness ignorance and lack of control remain unchanged yeah we're going to have world peace we're going to end world hunger we're going to do all that stuff uh-huh and yet our ignorance our inner weakness our lack of control all remain unchanged no matter how many computers we get no matter how many phones we get no matter how many sm- how smart everything gets no matter how much information is at our fingertips instantaneously we still are out of control and remain unchanged. The whole problem of mankind remains as before, but it is hidden under an embroidery of words, a new state, a new humanity, a paradise of material discoveries. But who's going to start from himself to render himself fit for any possible paradise? And how to do it? See, yeah, we can all talk about it, but how do you do it? What is going to raise the sensual up who shall either reinterpret science or place it in its place? Nothing that is in its right place can be wrong if it keeps its place. Mankind can be dragged down by a sure-fit of increasingly sensual interpretation, which does not either cover the facts or afford the right medium of presentation. Everyone has in him more functions more capacities, more sides to himself, than can possibly be satisfied by sheer materialism. That's why people are so unhappy. That's why they always want more, because it just cannot satisfy them. You're too big. The serpent must be lifted up in the wilderness. Who shall raise it? What spark shall kindle the marbles of science and transform them into the marbles of the universe? Can science cease to be animated by the latent spirit of hostility And can it create in man the free sense of wonder and awe in place of the spirit of denial? You must admit that science is its hostile toward religion, it's hostile toward these older thoughts and ideas, and it's in total denial. It thinks that it's going to rule the world, rule the universe. It thinks it's going to get it all figured out. What is going to change that? Tune in next week, and maybe we'll find out every